Well, I want to say good morning to all of you who are watching online, to those of you who are alive in our building, to those who are watching television. Thanks for being a part of the service today. I don't know where you are, but where we are, it is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful day. I want to begin with a little thought experiment. I don't do things like this often, but so whether you're joining me right now online or you're watching my TV or you're here in the room, I want you to do something for me. A little bit strange. I don't do it often, but I want all of you right now to close your eyes. Everybody. No, no peeking. Everybody close your eyes. I mean, close them really, really tight. I'm going to say a word in just a moment. When I say that word, I want you to focus on the image that first comes to your mind. Okay? Everybody's eyes closed tight. All right, here's the word. God. What do you see when you hear that word? What, what's the picture that popped up behind your eyelids? All right, you got it? All right, now open your eyes. Now, let me tell you why I wanted you to do that. Many years ago, there was an American pastor. His name was A.W. Tozer. He made one of the greatest statements I've ever come across, and I believe it's absolutely true. And here's what he said. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. No religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. The most determining fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart can see God to be like. That's not just true theologically, it's true scientifically. There were two sociologists from Baylor University, they interviewed, surveyed 4,000 adults they asked him, ask them this question, what is your view of God? And here's what they found out. It's really kind of amazing. They found out that the way people picture God determines their attitudes on everything from economics to justice, social morality, war, natural disaster, science, politics, and love. And what Dr. Tozer said, what these scientists said, absolutely go together. What we know is that the most important thing about you, the most important thing about me, the most important thing about us is not how much money we make. It is not what we look like. It's not what kind of car we drive, not what kind of house we live in. The most important thing about you is how you see God. The most important thing about me is how I see God. And the reason is very simple. Because how I see God will determine how I relate to God and it will determine how God relates to me. So let me, give you, let me just give you some examples. If you see God as the man upstairs, how many times do you hear that? If you see God as the man upstairs, kind of like the gray-haired God of Homer Simpson, you'll treat him just like the man upstairs. If you see God as the mean old man God, who not only hates sin but doesn't really care for sinners, loves to punish them and send them to hell, you probably won't want anything to do with that God. If you see God as the good old boy God, like Morgan Freeman from Bruce Almighty, just the good old boy God, he's just your buddy, he's just your homeboy, then here's what you'll think. You'll think, I can do anything I want to do. I can live any way I want to live. I can go anywhere I want to go. I can say anything I want to say. I can be anything I want to be. But me and God, we're cool. He's just the good old boy God. And then if you see God as the bellhop God, 
you ring the bell, he does what you want him to do, then you believe he's here to serve you. You're not here to serve him. And you'll believe that his one job in life is to give you everything you want, and the first time he does it, you kick him out. See, it's so important about how you see God. Now, let me give you a little clue. If you want to see God the right way, there's only one way to do it. You need to see God the way God sees God. You need to see God the way God sees himself. Because it's only when you see God for who he really is that you'll see who you for who you really are and you'll see others for the way they really are. And see, once that happens, once you get that right picture in your mind, there's a word we use around here called scent. And it takes on an entirely new meaning. We are in a series, if you're a guest of ours today, called All Things New. Because we believe in our church, the best life, the greatest life, the only life to live is the cross-shaped life. And that's life where we worship. We've talked about that. It's a worship where we, uh, a life where we serve. We've talked about that. But today we talk about a life that is sin. Now, by the way, this is not an idea that we made up. It actually comes from a vision that a prophet named Isaiah had about 2,800 years ago. If you're not a copy of God's Word, you want to look on with me. We're in a book in the Old Testament called Isaiah. Just start at Genesis. Keep turning. You'll hit it. Isaiah chapter 6. And here's what you're going to find out. Isaiah's got this vision. He's got, he's got, he's got a front row seat. He's got a 3D view of God, of what God really is and what God is really like and who God really is. And when Isaiah caught this 3D front row vision of God, his life was never, ever the same. From that moment on, you know what he became? He became a sent person. And the reason he was sent is the reason we ought to be sent as well. If you ever attend our church, you'll find out that at the end of every service, we say three words, you are sent. But I want to answer the question, why are you sent? Why should you be sent? Why would you want to be sent? Well, Isaiah tells us three reasons. Number one, we are sent because of the holiness of God. We are sent because of the holiness of God. Now, Isaiah begins by telling us the exact year this vision took place. Listen to what he says. In the year that King Uzziah died. All right, I got a question. Was that an important year? It was if you were Uzziah. <laughs> big time, big year. In the year that King Uzziah died, he said, I saw the Lord. Where? high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, it's, it's very important to Isaiah that this man died, but it's also important to the entire nation. Let me tell you why. Uzziah had reigned about 52 years, and he was one of the good guys. He was a great, great king. He had strengthened the defense of Jerusalem, he had led the nation to economic prosperity. The nation had enjoyed 50 years of peace and security. No wars were fought. No soldiers died. But then he dies. Now, back in that day, in that culture, whenever the king died, your country was the most vulnerable it could possibly be. Because when a king died, enemies would kind of surround that country like kind of like vultures going after a piece of meat because the leader had died. The commander-in-chief had died. And there was an enemy on the horizon named Assyria. She's ready to pounce. <clears throat> this king is dead. The government's in disarray. Nobody knows what's going to happen. 
A black cloud of fear had blocked out the sunshine of joy and unhappiness through the nation. It was almost like a tsunami of uncertainty had flooded the heart of this nation, and morale was at an all-time low. Kind of reminds me of a place I live in today. I finished this sermon that I'm preaching to you right now the day after thousands of protesters stormed the Capitol, protesting the results of the 2000 election. People were killed. The greatest symbol of democracy and freedom in the world was desecrated and violated. So let me just say, take a moment and say something you need to hear just in light of this one verse. No matter which side of the political spectrum you are on, there is no way to condone what occurred that day. Nobody can do it. Nobody should even try. And yet, as you and I watched what was going on in that screen, something we never thought we would see in our lifetime, something that had not happened since 1814. As we sat there and I looked at that, I thought to myself, you know, that's just a symptom of the times we're living in, the dissension, the disunity, the dysfunction, not to mention the disease that our nation is facing right now. And there's no question about it. Our ship of state right now is rocking and rolling in some of the most troubled seas of my lifetime. However, the answer to all of this has always been the same. You say, what's the answer? There is a God on the throne of heaven. He has everything under control. You notice when you read verse 1, there are two kings in that verse. There's a king who has died that all, like all kings do. But there's one king who lives and can never die. There is one throne that will never be empty, and that is God's throne. And as I was reading this verse, it was amazing. I was working on this message the day after all of this happened. And I said, I've got to say this. I don't want to stop. I want to say the word of, oh, to all of us who are listening right now. I don't care whether you're Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, or Independent. Listen to me. What will always matter the most and should matter the most, is not who is sitting in the Oval Office of the White House, but who is sitting on the throne of the universe. That's the only thing that counts. That is the only thing that matters. And by the way, this ruler doesn't serve any party. This is the God who is high and exalted, who is in complete control, who knows exactly what he's doing. So he's got this vision of God, right? So I want you to see, here's God, high exalted, sitting on a throne. But now listen to what happens. Verse 2, above him were seraphim, each with six wings. <clears throat> with two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. With two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, you may think I'm being hyperbolic, or may, you may think I'm kind of exaggerating. I, honest to God, believe that in all the Bible, that is the single most important picture of God you will ever, ever find. Because in, that, in those two verses, we find out once and for all, forget what Homer Simpson thinks or what anybody else thinks. We really find out, so this is who you are. This is what makes you God. You are the thrice holy God, if you were to go to, to all the lexicons and all the dictionaries and all the thesauruses of the world, and you were to find one word that would characterize God, it'd have to be holy. God is a 
Holy God. Did you know that every 12 times the name of God is mentioned in the Old Testament, the word holy goes right beside it? As a matter of fact, you may not even know this. The adjective holy is used for God more about God than all of the other adjectives in the Old Testament put together. See, contrary to popular opinion, the chief attribute of God is not love. It's not mercy. It's not grace. It's not compassion. It's not power. It's not knowledge. The chief attribute of God is holiness. You know, the most difficult, people ask me sometimes, what is the most difficult book in the Bible for you to read? It's not maybe the hardest to understand because that's probably Revelation, but the most difficult book is Leviticus. I tell people, sometimes people say, you know what? I'm going to read the Bible completely through this year. Here's what I always say to them. Beware of Leviticus. You know, let me tell you what. Leviticus made me a speed reader. I'll just let you kind of figure that out. It's hard. And yet, it's one of the most important books in all of the Bible because you know what the theme of, Levit of, of Leviticus is? Holiness. If you want to know what kind of a God we serve, read the book of Leviticus. That word holy or holiness occurs 87 times in that book. And what the author of Leviticus is telling us is just how holy God is. So when you read the book, here's what you're going to find. Holy priest wearing holy clothes in a holy land, in a holy place, using holy utensils and holy objects, celebrating holy days, living by holy law, all for the purpose <clears throat> that Israel might become a holy nation. You know, that, you know why the word holy there is repeated three times? Do you know why? You know why they say to God, holy, holy, holy? It's not because God's death. It's not because he didn't hear it the first time. You see, in Hebrew poetry, repetition is the method that you use when you want to emphasize something. When we want to emphasize something, here's what we do. We, we underline it or we italicize it or we put it in bold print or we put an exclamation point right after it. But when the Jewish people wanted to emphasize something, here's what they did. They just repeated it. Over and over and over. And when something was mentioned three times, that, that was their way of elevating it to the greatest degree and giving it the greatest importance. Only one time in the entire Bible, only once, is any characteristic ever repeated of God three times. And that is the word holy. Not love, not mercy, not grace, not justice, holiness. Why? Why is it so important that we understand God is a holy God? Because that tells us something about this God that doesn't go well in the 21st century. This is a God who always sides with good against evil. This is a God that always sides with right against wrong. This is a God that doesn't care what the polls say. This is a God that doesn't care what laws Congress passes. This is a God that doesn't care what nine Supreme Court, Supreme Court justices say. This is a God that says, I determine what is right. I determine what is wrong, and if I say it's right, it's always right, and if I say it's wrong, it is always wrong, and I'm always for one, and I'm always against the other. You know, one of the best presidents, in my opinion, I'm a big study of presidents. I love to collect presidential biographies. I've read many of them, and one of my all-time favorite presidents, and I think one of the really one of the best was ever, was a guy that many of you probably even remember or know about. His name was Calvin Coolidge. 
He only served one term. One of the most popular presidents we ever had, he just didn't want to serve another term. He could have been elected twice, but he only served one term. One of the things I admired about him was his nickname was Silent Cow because he was a man of very few words. He was very taciturn. He, he wasn't a very talkative guy. He just did not, he didn't say a lot. He was just, you know, kind of a quiet guy. I read the, one time he, he went to church and his wife, for whatever reason, didn't go. And so um, he, he came back home and his wife said, um, how was church today? He said, fine. She said, um, well, did the preacher preach a good sermon? He said, yes. She said, uh, well, what did he preach about? He said, sin. She said, well, what did he say? He said he was against it. <laughs> now, the same God that is for the sinner is against sin. And the reason why God is against sin is because he is a holy God. And because of his holiness, we are to be sent into a world of sin to share with all sinners. There is a holy God in heaven that wants to be right with you and wants you to be right with him. I'm sent because of the holiness of God. But there's another reason you ought to want to be sent. We are sent because of the heart of God. We are sent because of the heart of God. Not just the holiness of God, but the heart of God. Now, what, look what happens. As soon as Isaiah sees the holiness of God. Well, as soon as I say it, it says, that's what you're like. That's who you really are. That is your picture of you. Notice his reaction. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Stop and think about that. Who's, who's saying this? This is Isaiah. This is not a pimp. This is not a drug dealer. This is not a thief. This is not a robber. This is not a felon. This is not a murderer. This is a prophet. This is a man of God. He was a paragon of virtue and decency and morality. Everybody that looked at Isaiah said, that's what you want to be like. I, said, I want you to be just like him when you grow up. And yet when he looked through the window and he saw God on his throne in all of his holiness, that window became a mirror that showed him himself in all of his sinfulness. And see, this is what happens. You will never see the real you till you see the real God. Did you hear what I just said? You will never see the real you until you see the real God. Put it this way. You'll never see yourself for who you really are until you see God for who he really is. You'll never see yourself who you really are until you see God for who he really is. In the spiritual journey that I began as a nine-year-old boy, there's one thing I've learned over all these years. The more I think about God, the less I think about me. The more I think of God, the less I think of me. See, most of, most of us live in one, or, one of two extremes, to be honest with you. We're either full of God and empty of ourselves, or we're full of ourselves and we're empty of God. But when Isaiah saw who he really was, he didn't like the picture. He said, I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. You know what that word ruined means? bankrupt. I thought I was a good guy, Lord. I 
thought I was a fine man, Lord. When I saw you, I'm spiritually bankrupt. I'm ethically bankrupt. I'm morally bankrupt. I'm internally bankrupt. That word for ruined, it literally means to come unraveled. When Isaiah saw God for who he was and himself for who he realized he really was, you know what he saw all of a sudden? All that righteousness, all of his goodness, all of his credentials, all of his popularity crumbled to dust before a righteous and holy God. Listen, when God is high and exalted, here's what will happen. When God is high and exalted, we will be low and taken down. You know what's wrong with America? We got the wrong view of God. Oh, yeah, we're cool, God. Yeah, we're cool. We can, you're not going to like this. That's okay. Yeah, we can turn our back on what you said about marriage and say, yeah, homosexual marriage is cool. And yeah, we don't care what the Bible says about life. If it's, uh, you can't have the baby, just abort it. I can go on and on. But that's our view of God. He's okay. We're okay. But then we see the true heart of God. Look what happens. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now, look what, look, look what God does for Isaiah. He didn't disagree with Isaiah. He didn't say, Oh, Isaiah, your problem is low self-esteem. You need to see a therapist. No, your problem is you're, 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 you're a good, you just don't know how good you are. He didn't argue with him. He said, You know what? You're right. You are ruined. You are spiritually bankrupt. You are a man of unclean lips. You need help. Because there's only one remedy for sin, that's forgiveness. And there's only one avenue for that remedy, and that is atonement. Listen, forgiveness is free. Here's the good news. You ready? Forgiveness is free, but it's not cheap. It's free, but it's not cheap. Someone has to atone. Somebody's got to pay for it. Somebody's got to compensate for any sin that's done. So he takes the coal. Did you see what he said? He takes, but where did the coal come from? He said it came from the altar. See, there was an altar right next to that throne. What's an altar? That's where the blood of sacrifices were shed for the sins of the people. You remember the Old Testament? You don't, I'll refresh your memory. On the annual day of atonement, the Jewish high priest would take hot coals and incense, and, and, and he would go into that most holy place in that temple. He'd fill that room with smoke. Then he would sprinkle the blood of that sacrifice on the mercy seat, and God would look at the blood on that mercy seat. He would smell that incense and that smoke, and he would say, okay, your sin has been paid for. Your sin has been, been atoned for. I forgive you of all your sin. Now, does that picture I just painted for you, does that remind you of anything? Does it remind you of anybody? It ought to remind you of the cross. And it ought to remind you of Jesus. Because that's exactly what happened at the cross. God said, you know what? Somebody's got to pay for your sin, but you can't pay for it because you can't pay for something infinite with a finite life. That won't work. So God sends Jesus to die on the cross. And God took the blood of his own son and sprinkled it on the mercy seat of his own heart and said, I will forgive you. Let me tell you why I say that. Listen to me. When you look at the cross of Jesus, you see the heart of God. When you look at the tears of Jesus, you see the heart of God. When you look at those nailed, scarred hands that one day we will all see if we know him, you see the heart of God. When you see the suffering of Jesus, you see the heart of God. When you see the death of Jesus, you see the heart of God. You say, why are you telling me that? Because I get sick and tired of hearing people do this. Well, the God of the Old Testament, he's not the God of the New Testament. No, he is not. He is one and the same. 
The God that loves us in the New Testament is the God that loves us in the Old Testament. You need to understand the God of compassion in the New Testament is the God of compassion in the Old Testament. The God of grace in the New Testament is the God of grace in the Old Testament. And listen, here's the beautiful thing. I want you to understand this about this great God that we serve. When we sin, when we blow it, when we fail, when we mess up, when we do wrong, when we break his law and we break his heart, his first instinct is not to judge us. His first instinct is to atone for it. His first instinct is to say, let me put you in a place where I can forgive you. It is because of the heart of God that we are sent. God has a heart for everyone without Christ to know that Christ has atoned for their sins. You know why you ought to want to be sent? Because of the holiness of God. Why should I want to be sent? Because of the heart of God. But then Isaiah said one last thing. We are sent because of the hope of God. We are sent because of the hope of God. Okay, so here's the good news. Isaiah, good news for you. Isaiah has this vision of God. He sees himself for who he really is. I am ruined. I'm undone. I'm coming apart. I'm bankrupt. Woe is me. Not so fast, Isaiah. Or not so fast, my friend, as the coach would say. Isaiah, here's a coal from the altar. Your sins have been paid for. Your dirt has been washed clean. Your soul is as white as the driven snow. Good for Isaiah. Some of you sitting there right now say, man, that's me. I, that's where I am, Pastor. I, I, Bruce talked about being a seven-year-old boy. I was a nine-year-old boy, and I gave my life to Christ. And some of you say, man, that's me. I, I, I saw myself for who I really was, and I, I realized that Christ died for me and came back for me, and I realized I needed Jesus, and I gave my life to Christ, and he changed me and saved me and converted me and cleansed me, and boy, I am good to go. Good for you. But what about the rest of the world? What about your next-door neighbor? What about the person that you live next door to? What about the person that you work with? What about your golfing buddies? What about your fishing buddies? What about your hunting buddies? What about those civic organizations you're a part of? What about them? So you hear this. Watch this. This is so cool. Isaiah says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for? You expect him to say me. Kind of strange. Who shall I send? Any, oh, by the way, who will go for us? And you talk about, you talk about what a, what a tremendous experience that Isaiah's having. He is so close to God, he's listening in on a conference call between the Trinity. They're talking to each other. God wasn't talking to himself when he said, who will go for us? So what are you, what are you saying? God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, every single time you walk into the doors of this building, every single time you watch these words on TV or watch these words online, watching right now, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is asking that same question every time before you leave. Who will go for us? Who shall I send? Now that you've seen my holiness, now that you've seen my heart, how many of you will leave where you are and go share the hope of the world? And then you see Isaiah's finest moment. You ready? Listen to this. He said, here am I. Send me. 
Boy, what a refreshing answer. God says, whom will I send? Who, who will go for us? I don't say this to fuss at you. I'm just being honest. I've, I've pastored over 40 years, and I've pastored, over five church, I've pastored five churches. And Can I just be honest? Do you know what the vast majority of people say to that question? When God says, who shall I send? Who, who will go for us? You know what most people say? They say, there he is, send him. There she is, send her. Not Isaiah. He said, here am I, send me. Now there's a little small difference there, but I, I do want you to notice it. You notice he says, and by the way, in the original Hebrew, that's the order, here am I. So what do you mean? He didn't say here I am. That would just point out his location. He said, here am I. This was his application. You know what he was doing? He was applying for the job. He was saying to God, give me the green light. I'll go. You, you need somebody? Take me. If I'm the only one that will go, send me. I've told you before, and we'll say it again. Jesus Christ did not leave, this, leave heaven and come to earth to be born of a virgin, live a perfect life, die on a cross, and come back from the grave. He didn't do that just to save you. And he didn't do it just to save you. And he didn't do it just to save you. And he didn't do it just to save me. How selfish would that be? Now, I'll tell you why Jesus came. He came to save you and save me so that we in turn would share with other people they can be saved too. Because Jesus said itself, no man lights a lamp and keeps it under a bushel. Here am I, send me. You know, as you know, we, we no longer have a draft in this country. We have a, a volunteer army, totally volunteer. That, that's why I so admire people in the military because if, you're in the, if you see someone serving in the military, nobody made them go. Nobody put a gun to their head. They just voluntarily, like you, my brother, like just volunteers, yeah, I want to serve my country. And I want you to, I'm in the territory for all of you men and women that have served our military. Thank you from the bottom of our heart. Thank you for serving our country. You want to volunteer, you just did it. Well, God also has a volunteer army. Did you know that? God doesn't draft anybody. You say, really? Yeah, there's just one difference. He expects everybody to volunteer. He expects everybody to put on the uniform. He expects everybody to pick up the, the, the gun and the weapon. He, ex he expects everybody to take the oath. He expects everybody to go through boot camp. And then he expects you to go wherever you are sent. Now, as any soldier might expect, I'm going to be honest. I'm not going to pull any punches here. <laughs> You're not always sent to easy places. Because listen to what he says to Isaiah. Now, listen to this. He says to Isaiah, go and tell this people. He says, okay. But then he warns him. Now, they'll be ever hearing, but never understanding. They'll be ever seeing, but they'll be never perceiving. So let me just go ahead and warn you before you get out here and say, okay, I'm ready to go. The work's not easy. The places you'll go to will be hard. We're to share the best news, but I got news for you. You're going to run into hearts that are hard. You're going to run into eyes that are blind. You're going to run into ears that are deaf. The best news I've ever heard in my life is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I'm here to tell you, of all the people I've seen saved, I've seen far more people say no than say yes to Jesus. 
So I'm not, gonna, I'm not trying to paint a rosy picture. It is hard. But what you need to understand is once you go and once you share, your mission is accomplished. That's all God wants you to do. So as we get ready to leave here in just a moment, I got three questions I want to ask you. If you can't answer yes to all these three questions, one of us has failed. I failed to get the point across that you just didn't listen. Have you seen the holiness of God? Do you understand? He's, just not, he's not just the man upstairs. And he's not cool with everything we're doing right now. And it doesn't matter what the polls say. It doesn't matter what Hollywood says. It doesn't matter what Washington says. He's not cool with everything that's going on right now. Have you seen the heart of God? God says, it's not my will that anybody perish. I want everybody to come to repentance. And then, have you seen the hope of God? Because what we're talking about is the only hope of the world. Now, if you say, Pastor, I've seen one, I've seen two, I've seen three. Then when God says, who will go for us? Who shall I send? You know what you'll say? Here am I. I will go willingly, gladly, and joyfully. So, last thing and we're finished. One of the greatest preachers that ever lived is Charles Spurgeon. He was kind of the founder of the mega church, unbelievable pastor. He taught, uh, actually formed a Bible college. He was the president and the chief professor, and he trained a lot of preachers. One day he was in class, and he opened, always opened up for questions, <clears throat> and one of his students asked a question so many people ask. They said, Pastor Spurgeon, they said, what about people who have never heard about Jesus? What about those people? He said, can people who have never heard about Jesus be saved? Spurgeon said, it's, it's a troubling question for sure, but listen to this. But even more troubling is whether those of us who know the gospel and do nothing to bring it to lost people can be saved. Let that sink in. It's a troubling question. But even more troubling is whether those of us who know the gospel and do nothing to bring it to lost people can be saved. And then he closed with these words. If Jesus is precious to you, you will not be able to keep your good news to yourself. You will be whispering it into your, into your child's ear. You will be telling it to your husband. You'll be earnestly imparting it to your friend. Without the charms of eloquence, you will be more than eloquent. Your heart will speak and your eyes will flash as you talk of his sweet love. Every Christian, every Christian is either a missionary an imposter. In my quiet time this morning as I was reading God's Word and reading my Bible, I'm in the Gospel of Luke. And I read this verse and every time I read it, it really gets me almost trembling. Jesus said, if you are ashamed of me and my words in this generation, I'll be ashamed of you when you stand before my Father in heaven. Now you may sit there and you may say, oh, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of Jesus. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. If you're not sharing Jesus and you're not sharing the gospel, what difference is there between you and the person who's just honest enough to admit they're ashamed of the gospel? And that's why I love what Paul said. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation.
to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So today, let us all say before we even ask to go, before I even tell you, will you go? Let's go ahead and say right now in our hearts, oh God, here I am, send me. Would you pray with me right now? With his bowed and with eyes closed. You know why Isaiah was sent? To share the best news anybody will ever hear. Let me tell you something. Listen to me. I don't care if you're a member of the Chamber of Commerce. I don't care if you've won the Presidential Medal of Freedom. I don't care if you were voted Father of the Year. I don't care if you give half of your income away to charity. Your righteousness is like filthy rags before a holy and a righteous God. You need a Savior. You need somebody that can do for you what you cannot do for yourself, and that's pay for your sins. That's what Jesus did on the cross. And he came back from the grave so that you would accept him and trust him and then turn around and begin to share him with others. I'm looking at some of you right now in this room and some of you listening to me right now. I'm coming into your living room. I'm asking you, do you really know Jesus? Have you really been saved? Has God taken that coal off the altar and cleansed your heart? If you say, no, he hasn't, but I want him to, would you just tell him that right now? Would you just pray this prayer? Would you just say, Lord Jesus, I have finally seen you the way you are. And I realize I'm a man, I'm a woman of unclean lips. I am undoing, undone. I am spiritually bankrupt. I need a Savior, and you're that Savior. Lord Jesus, today, this moment, right now, I ask you to come into my heart. I ask you to save me. I ask you to forgive me of all of my sins. I repent and turn away from my sins. And I trust you to save me right now. You are my Lord. You are my Savior. And I thank you for what you have done today. Help me, Lord Jesus, to live for you the rest of my life. Now, here's what I want to ask you to do. If you're in this building right now, I want you to do this for me. If you're sitting here and you made that decision, or if you're watching online right now and you say, man, I did, I prayed that prayer. I asked Christ to come into my heart. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. You can do this on your iPad, your phone, whatever you want to do. I want you to go either to crosspointchurch.com slash decision, okay? Crosspointchurch.com slash, do it right now. Or just text yes Jesus to 56525. That's all one word, yes Jesus, 56525. If you prayed that prayer with me and you meant it, here in the building, watching right now, you text that to us right now. Do it right now. Now, I want all of you to look up here at me. Everybody look right here for just a moment. Before we leave, if you've been taking notes on your outline that's in our app, there's one more little blank I want you to fill out. And if you don't have the outline, I want you to just go ahead and take a pen or a pencil or do it on your phone or whatever. I want you to write down a sentence. And here's the sentence. My one is blank. So if you've got that outline, fill it out. My one is blank. I want you to take a moment and write down the name of somebody. Listen, somebody that you know that you do not believe or you pretty sure does not know Jesus. I want you to write down the name of that person. Now look, your one can't be somebody that lives in Minnesota. That can be a long distance one. I mean a local one. Somebody you know that you have contact with, that you maybe work with, you go to school with or whatever. When you leave here today, we've got what we call best news cards. You go pick one up and you can take it, share it, give it to someone when it's appropriate. 
and ask God to do a great work in their life. And I'm asking you this week, if nothing else, at least make contact with that one. Begin to build a relationship with that one. And ask God to use you to bring that one to come to know Jesus as Lord and as Savior. Now, I want you to write down a verse of Scripture. I'm going to give it to you. Let me tell you how to pray for your one. I believe in praying God's Word back to Him. I know God always answers those prayers. So this is the prayer I pray. I've got several ones. Some of you know who they are. I've got several ones. And I pray specifically for my ones every Tuesday. This is the prayer I pray. It's in Acts 26, 18. Put their name right there. Let's say, let's say that your, your one is John. Lord, would you open John's eyes and turn him from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that John may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those of us who are sanctified by faith in me. Just pray that prayer. Acts 26, verse 18. And as we wrap up our service, we're going to sing one last song. Before we do, pray with me one more time. And here's what I want you to pray. Lord, build my life around the gospel. Build my life around sharing the gospel. Build my life around telling people that they need Jesus. Build my life around my bringing one person to Jesus. And Lord, this is my prayer, and I mean it with all of my heart and all of my soul. Here am I. Send me. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.